going to go on. And what, what are we supposed to be doing? I think our response, again, I said, is twofold. We respond to God and we respond to other people. And while we're asking, what's going on? We know as we go to God, we have a sovereign God to trust in who knows the outcome and knows the answer. But let's think specifically of the people that we're around, especially non-believers that we may be around, whether in our family, neighborhood, workplace. And think... Church, if you would please turn open to Zechariah chapter 14. Remember, if you find Matthew, go left a few pages and you'll find Zechariah 14. What a week, huh? This has been interesting and weird and confusing and uncertain, all wrapped into within a minute of experience. Uh, we have to remember, and, and <clears throat> uh, those of you who received the email this week from me, just in terms of how, uh, how are we to be postured and responding as a church in the midst of cultural uncertainty that that we're in. You know, we've got to remember God placed us right here, right now, to be lights in the midst of darkness. And in the panic and the uncertainty or the passivity, there's, there's a light that we need to bring, a light of God's truth that we need to represent and bring. Because guess, that's why God has placed us here. You know, I think the only thing historically referenced uh, with this, way back in 1918, with a flu epidemic. So this is weird stuff. I remember watching uh, September 11, 2001 unfold uh, in front of the TV and remembering this is going to be in history books. And at some, in some form or fashion, this is going to be in history books as well because of uh, whoever thought the United States would be able to shut down life as much as states are doing this week. But we need to, we need to be careful not to fall into the panic uh, we also need to be careful not to fall into passivity. And I think the, the two, those two ends of the spectrum, you know, we know people who are frail enough that they need to pay attention to sickness and disease. And we want to care for them. And even the generational differences, this virus seems to be um, more astute to... Uh, the older generation and difficulty with them fighting it, whereas younger generations, the kids of what I've heard can be carriers, but they don't experience any symptoms, like babies and all up. I'm grateful for that. But this is just really uncertain. So we, we can't be passive either. You know, we need to have a response that does two things. One, it looks to God and recognizes his sovereignty. He's God. And he, nothing is taking him by surprise. And he is putting things in place for the church to shine. Because our second response needs to be compassion for other people. Uh, we should not be, as people interact with us, we should not be prone to panic or prone to passivity. Like, oh, it's just nothing, nothing, nothing. We don't know who we're interacting with. And that's why we need to be careful. And as we're talking about it, as we're interacting, there's a compassion in us that recognizes all right, we recognize what's going on, but we have a trust. You know, what we do together today, uh, in times of trial, the church comes together. Now, we're not coming together out of defiance. We're not like, huh, watch this. We're going to meet anyway. 
No, that's why we're saying we're still going to continue to monitor things. And if, if other parameters are set in place, we want to honor the authority that God's placed, the civil authorities that he's placed over us. But there, we want to gather to praise. We want to gather to say, no, it's right for the church to gather and remind one another and remind our own hearts that God's in control and we worship him and we praise him. Uh, one thing that I, I believe now is a common denominator for everybody in our culture is stress and worry, because whether you're stressed out about uh, the coronavirus or stressed out about what am I going to do with my kids, uh, I don't like this schooling thing, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, elementary, uh, I feel for them, because I, I know the older ones, middle school up, uh, and high school can really do, kind of do things online. But I, I told my kids, I announced to them that homeschooling is returning to our home. And so it was, Kathy and I were talking yesterday how we have to put parameters back in place, like when we were homeschooling, to say, no, we need to get up at a certain time, need to be dressed, need to have our minds ready. We're not going to just spill on into doing things in the middle of the night because we want to have some structure. But I, I feel for folks who have never done that before because they're going to have pretty rude awakening come Wednesday, when everything gets back uh, going online. But uh, our, our worry could be about finances. Our worry could be about, and there should be a compassion in us. Uh, when, when you hear of more and more and more things shutting down, and that includes restaurants, and, you know, they're uh, pulling the, the Women's Final Four out of New Orleans creates a loss of around $25 million that would have been spent in and around the city. And people work. There's people at hotels that work and that are dependent upon that. And so there should be a, a bit of compassion in there. But as we think about what's going on, and every day this week was weird because it seemed to... Uh, the tipping point was Wednesday when things began to be canceled. But then Thursday and Friday was about what's going to happen today. What new thing is going to be taking place? Uh, we, should, we should put ourselves in the minds of unbelievers, non-believers in Jesus, who are still trying to figure out life on their own. And we must remember that as God's placed us here in this time for this, uh, to be a light in the midst of this present panic or uncertainty, we have to ask the question and be able to, be, to, to have the understanding to say, why is everybody so in a frenzy? Or why doesn't anybody, why, why do people not care? What's going on? Why are there scares? Every year there's another scare. And we're told sometimes we have to think more about this scare than other scares. But every year there's a scare. But we have to recognize that every year there's going to be a scare. Because we live in a culture that is, even in our, our secular society, that continues to remove the slightest reminder of God's existence and God's authority, fear exposes a truth. What everybody recognizes with this, when there is a, a scare, it's a fear of death. What are we going to do? What am I going to do? What if this happens to my loved ones? Whenever we think about death, we know deep inside of us as God's image bearers. We have to give an account and a reckoning for our lives. What did we trust? Not what did we do. What did we trust? Every non-believer is thinking 
that, even if they're trying to shove it way down to not have the voice quelled from their minds. Without realizing it, we live in a culture. The culture doesn't realize how they're looking for Eden. They're looking for the Garden of Eden all the time. They're looking for uh, freedom of sickness or, or free sickness, uh, free money. They're, everybody's looking for how can, I, how can life just be better for me and relieve all the stress and the worry and the anxiety. What are we asking for? Culture's looking for Eden. So with every medical discovery and uh, every vaccine and all, we, the culture goes through leaps, goes to leaps and bounds in order to, to satisfy the insecurity of one day I'm going to face God and I don't know what I'm going to tell him. So that should give us compassion and also understanding to recognize we should not be surprised when the culture acts like that. So getting mad at the media is not helping this process. Getting mad at things as for believers is not helping this process along, recognizing God wants us to be here for this moment. And he wants us to do that in a way that's going to respond to him in worship, but also respond to others in compassion. Now, this brings us to Zechariah. I just, it's fun to see how God puts together uh, sermons here and, and just in my own heart. This chapter, which concludes this book, is about Jesus coming again to take us to heaven. And there's not a greater truth that we can be reminded of right now. This is for us right now. And next week, beginning a series on peace. Just how, do we, how do we have peace in the midst of chaos? God is God's speaking to us <coughs> excuse me, as his church, and we want to lean in and say, all right, what are you doing? Now, the entire message of Zechariah has been to look out and up for a heavenly priest king who will establish an eternal relationship with God. Zechariah points to Jesus so his original readers as well as us, we'll look forward to an ultimate solution to remedy every present distress. Zechariah is telling his people that he will take care of their greatest need, which is not relief, mental relief. It's not financial relief. It's salvation. Remember when uh, the, Jesus was teaching in a home and uh, Four friends brought their paralytic friend and they went up on the roof because they couldn't go through the door and they dug out uh, the roof in order to get him right in front of Jesus and they placed him in front of Jesus. What did Jesus tell him? Your sins are forgiven, which strikes everybody in the room like, what do sins have to do with anything? Dude's a paralytic. How can he sin? He can't do anything. Pharisees are asking him questions. He perceives and they're saying that. He says, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or get up, rise, get up and walk. He says, but so you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up, rise, walk. Dude gets up, walks out. Now, why didn't he say, you can get well right now, so rise up and walk? Why didn't he say that first? Two things. So everybody would recognize he's God who forgives sins. But two, so with this man... And everybody there that saw him would recognize that Jesus is telling him, your greatest need right now is not to walk. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins because that's what waits in eternity. Whether we are forgiven now or not forgiven now has huge and dire, perhaps, consequences into the future and for all eternity. 
So as we turn to this passage, this passage is the culmination of a message that causes us to look up and outward for Jesus. And we have no greater need to be reminded of this than right at this time. Church, he has come and he will come again to reign over all as the triumphant eternal king. This chapter gives a reality to Jesus' return. It says he's coming, and here's how you can know he's coming, and this is what's going to happen when he does come. And our study of Jesus' triumphant return should bring about the effect of love. We should love God, we should love others, but it also should bring about the hope, stirring up of hope in our hearts that is the living waters of the Holy Spirit that we looked at last week. It is those living waters. So when we look at Jesus coming again, it, it gives us hope to experience his goodness now. All right. Uh, Zechariah 14, if you would follow along as I read God's word. Behold, a day is coming from the, for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when, as when he fights <clears throat> on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there should be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, the corner gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there, there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will, will rot when they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives all the, of all the nations that I have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them shall be no rain. 
There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the, keep the, uh, the Feast of Booths. This shall, be to, this shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not, go, do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be, be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and, Ju- and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall, be no, long, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Father, we declare your word as authoritative and good for us. We ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit and his illumination to help us understand what it is we're reading. In Jesus' name, amen. I think this, this chapter is broken up into four sections. Uh, in the first section, verses, the first five verses, we see the promised coming king that will, uh, that will come at the end of all time. But the first couple verses are very disturbing in their imagery because there's a total onslaught. You know, in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament as well as now, in, in the age of the New Testament, God's people have always been under attack. And some of them have been really, really bad attacks. What Zechariah is pointing to, and also Jesus picks up with his disciples, it's going to get worse. And it's going to be worse than anybody had ever imagined or seen, even up to that point. We know from New Testament passages that the, the pangs of the coming day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, they're felt in every generation. So every generation, has a, we have this cycle of feeling things are bad. And that lets us know one day Jesus is coming back. But Zechariah is saying one day it will be so bad that he really will come back because he's going to respond. The suffering will reach the point of anguish leading to escape. Half the city goes into exile. The other half stays in the city under attack. I think this reveals that persecution... Uh, it re- persecution reveals conversion. Persecution will take everybody, anybody who has uh, been falsely converted, they, they say they have a relationship with the Lord, but there's been no repentance and they live life on their own. They go off into exile. But persecution also reveals genuine conversion, those who are really are gods. But when you have a genuine conversion, you stay in the attack. You don't flee because the Spirit is there helping you when when the people need a rescue. God promises it will come from him. In verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. The one who had been pierced and looked upon will come back alive for his people. He will fight so they won't have to fight. Remember, uh, back in the fall, we looked at Second Chronicles chapter, chapter 20 and trying to, to ask the question, what does it look like? If God fights our battles, what's to be our response? Our response is, we should worship. That's how he fights. That's our role as he's fighting our battles. Second Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. There is no nation on this earth that will send out a trumpet 
before a machine gun. But yet, that's how God fights. He says, you worship me and you watch what I'm going to do. And say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. You know, there's stories in the Old Testament of God putting the things in people's ears. Like they heard a sound, they freak out, and they start killing one another. God sets ambushes for us constantly. It would be probably an interesting aspect. Uh, interesting opportunity in heaven to find out how many times those battles took place and we were oblivious. God was just protecting us. He was protecting his work and his glory in us. The faithful who are attacked in Jerusalem, we know will surely be singing the praises of God. Remember how Paul and Silas were rescued from the, the jail in Philippi? While they were singing hymns, there was a great earthquake that shook everything and sent the prison doors open. Jesus fights our, our battles today, but he will come to fight the last battle, the battle that will end all battles to bring the reality of his eternal kingdom on the earth. And we have a reference in verses 4 and 5 to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives has played a significant role in the life of God's people in Jerusalem it's across from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is set up on a hill, and there's a valley right there that's a Kidron Valley, and on the other side is the Mount of Olives. So it's, you look directly on it. Jesus spent a lot of time up there as he was teaching his disciples about his mission to come as the sacrifice. It's where David stopped to look back at Jerusalem as he fled Absalom's uh, conspiracy. It was also the place of refuge when the earthquake attacked in King Uzziah's time that he references. That's where they went. Let's, let's go find refuge in the Mount of Olives or, or maybe on the other side. And as Jesus frequented that mountain, he used it for prayer. He used it for teaching his disciples. But it was also the location that he ascended into heaven. And the angel said he will return in the exact same way or he will return in the same way that he was taken. Putting this together with verse 4, Zechariah told how Jesus will return. And upon his return, he will set his foot on the mount and split it in two. If you remember back to chapter 6 in Zechariah, there were uh, two bronze mountains that horses and chariots came through, and we said those probably represent the gate of heaven. But I think Jesus coming down separates those and makes bronze mountains because <clears throat> it was the gate of heaven that genuine believers found rescue in. Heaven is the ultimate hope for all of our distresses and diseases and depressions. The open gate brings the kingdom of earth, uh, kingdom, God's kingdom to earth. See, we know and we exist in Jesus' kingdom spiritually. But there will be a day that's this being described that Jesus' kingdom will be a literal kingdom on this earth, what, what people during his time misinterpreted his, his mission to be. He said, right now I'm building a spiritual kingdom, but it, it will be a physical kingdom at some point. There are, in the next section, verses 6 through 11, it, they tell us of what it will look like when Jesus returns. And Jesus explains a lot of these same things on the Mount of Olives to his disciples as recorded in Mark 13. They're so similar that it, you probably think that Mark had Zechariah 14 in mind as he was recording what Jesus said during that time. 
but we have cosmic signposts. In verse 6 and 7, the coming of Jesus will turn the cosmic order inside out because it will be a unique day. And Jesus says it in Mark 13, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and they will send out Uh, And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I think Jesus is describing what Ezekiel 6 and 14. Look, see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He will return in the way that he went. And he will, he's riding a white horse on those clouds. But look, then he's sending the angels to the the elect in the four winds, the four directions. It's exactly what the chariots were doing when they came through those two bronze mountains. There will be unmistakable signs that let everybody know this is it. Not, not some calendar that ended in 2012. It will be cosmic signposts that turn everything on its ear. Now there's a source in verse 8. There's a source of God's kingdom. And this uh, is referring to last week and looking at the, the living water that God is in his fountain to us. It's what Ezekiel saw. This, just think about it, though. God's source for heaven is for his waters to flow and fill up seas. It's, it's a, indicating our experience that we're going to have with him ongoing. It's what Ezekiel saw in this kingdom coming as he sees a new temple, and he takes dimensions of it. Ezekiel 40 through 47 tells us that. But Ezekiel 43, he said, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with its glory. He's seeing a temple come, and the temple comes with the sound of many waters, a rushing in. Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. There's water as the source of God's, not just his city, his temple, in his city for his kingdom. This image finds its complement in Revelation when John describes a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Revelation 21, he carried carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Then in the next chapter in Revelation, he points out there's a river there. There's living waters. There's flowing waters. It's the river of life. When the angel, uh, Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's what our culture is looking for, church. Where is ultimate healing? We know. Because we know that the people that we live around and interact with, if they are not believers in Jesus Christ and his, his self, uh, saving work in their place, 
we know their greatest need is not to be healed of their diseases. Their greatest need is to know Jesus and to meet him. And that's why God has us here, so we can show them and tell them. No longer, verse 3 in Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. These are the pictures of the promises to restore Jerusalem to better than it had ever been. So look, stepping back, we, we search for Eden, not recognizing God is going to restore Eden with better than we could have ever realized. Heaven, uh, Eden will pale, pale in comparison to everything that heaven will be and is for God's people. God will establish his temple in his city with his king to reign there forever. In verse 9, it's, verse 9 is the main point of the, verse, uh, of the chapter. The Lord will be king over all the earth. The promise fulfillment to, uh, to, to God's covenant with David was, you'll never lack a man to sit on the throne. And he points to his To David's son, who is Jesus, he points to Jesus as the one that will be there forever. For God's people, King Jesus is better than all the pleasures of the the eternal kingdom that he brings. Even though there's a river of life and there's experience with that, and and we're in God's presence all the time. That treasure and that pleasure must be first found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So that begs the question. Is Jesus your treasure? Is he everything to you? A way to think about it would be this. Would you want to go to heaven if Jesus were not there? It tests whether we want simple relief. God, I just want you to do something for me. Make my life go better. Take this away. Can I just millions upon millions of dollars? Never have to worry about money. Never have to worry about sickness. Or do we recognize that If Jesus isn't in heaven, it's not heaven. Because his presence is what our experience is. His presence, that living water, is his presence there. God with his people. And then we see that kingdom in verses 10 and 11, that kingdom is exalted. That all of the, it gives the picture of all the mountains around Jerusalem being leveled. But Jerusalem stayed, uh, staying high, exalted on its hill. That's what everybody wanted to see during Jesus' day, what, they, what Zechariah's hearers wanted. But listen, the exaltation of the city means that all rival thrones are leveled, even the rival thrones that we set up in our own hearts. Put ourselves there on the throne or put something else that will not give us what we crave. Now, due to the king in residence, the kingdom won the promise, no more destruction and total security. That's another thing that uh, there are, uh, that's what people want. Let's end all wars. Let's, why are we fighting so much? It's been a mantra for generations in this country. Let's just, let's just stop all the fighting. It's not, we know it's not going to stop because man's heart is the issue not some peace agreement that we can finally get in writing and signed by all parties. That the heart is what's evil, and there's a coming judgment 
on those evil hearts. That's what we see in the next uh, set of verses, verses 12 through 15. As wondrous as the return of Jesus will be for the redeemed, it will also be a sobering day, a terrifying day for those who are still in their sin. Jesus told his disciples that his judgment would be part of the day of the Lord. See, we know, uh, and, and this is revealing, when Jesus returns, it's both wondrous as he collects his bride and brings them with him to heaven, but it's also terrifying because as he brings grace and, and final salvation to secure us in his presence forever, he's judging those who have turned their backs on him and remain in their rebellion. And these are felt with plagues and panic. Zechariah prophesied that torment would be upon the sinners who have not repented. Utter destruction shows up in utter deformity, skin wearing off, eyes rotting, tongues rotting. This is gross, and it, it should be, because this is, this is how we should, and it's why Jesus' death on the cross was so gruesome. Because sin matters to God. Sin tears us up. If it, it, it mars and distorts the image that God has made us in his image. When we continue to mar that image, sin does that. And sin causes that rotting. But there will be a day of physical rotting. And we're reminded that when Jesus comes to judge the earth, and everybody that's ever lived on the, uh, the earth that has died in their sins will stand before him, before his judgment throne. And they will face then the inescapable judgment of the torrential wrath of God that is unrelenting and lasts for eternity. This should sober us to compassion for people that we are in life with and around. It's good for us to remember what is waiting unbelievers because it will motivate us to share the love of Christ with them. The plague will reach animals. There'll be no escape. Now, this should give us uh, compassion, but also it, it should also cause understanding that when the world freaks out, that's understandable, because what are they really freaking out about? I don't want to die, because death means God is there, and I'm accountable to him, and I have not put my trust in him. So we, we are understanding in the world. The judgment of Jesus will bring physical punishment and emotional anguish that then turns into panic. Everybody's running after one another, then they're turning on each other. The plague produces the panic. How appropriate in our context, a virus producing a panic. People would turn on one another seeking anything to escape. We, can, we, we feel these pangs of panic in a culture facing death without hope. They're desperate to relieve the internal chaos that they're experiencing. Now, as, as we live in lights in the world pointing to the glory of God, both in our, our, our words and in our actions... We're storing up treasures in heaven. There's an interesting thing. There, the, the, 
in verse 14, how the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments, great abundance. This would trigger their thoughts to the Exodus, in Exodus, when God delivered his people from Egypt, and everybody's giving them gold and silver, like, here, just take this, get out of here. Leave us alone, so this plague stops. Now, during that time, remember when the plagues were coming, the ten plagues were coming upon uh, Egypt, all the people in Goshen, the God's people in Goshen, they weren't affected by that. And so I think there's an element that as we live life, we are living for the glory of God and we're storing up treasure for the glory of God through our obedience. The world looks at that and says, one, what's going on? Can I give you something so I get it too? There's an aspect of I I, want to give you, but our hearts are settled knowing that all the wealth that we acquire in this earth is going to fizzle. But there's an eternal wealth that we're, we're living toward that is found in Jesus. But understand this, our wealth is not to be sought in this life. We have wealth. Each of us individually have more wealth that the world can't even contain. Because everything that Jesus is, everything that he has, is ours through faith. So we have a day coming when all of that will be realized, and that's the coming consummation. When God brings all of this together and Jesus comes for his bride, and there's a celebration that occurs. We see uh, an ingathering of people from city cities to worship the one true king. And the blessing of the celebration will be for all families. Families, not just individuals, the promise that God made to Abraham to bless families. The warning, and there's a weird, peculiar warning in here for people who don't go to the feast. Like, shame on you if you don't go to the Feast of Booths. Why, Why was there a warning? You know, if we the original hearers, and if we understand what's going on, uh, Zechariah is describing something that was unimaginable for them. They're facing disillusionment. Has God given up on them? When will the temple ever be here? Will we ever be free from the bondage that we feel, uh, even financially, from the, the people that are over our territory and land? They're staring at that, and when they have the promise, this is what it's going to be like, and God puts his temple there, and he's got his king there, and everything gets leveled, and and Jerusalem is exalted. They're thinking, this is great. So give this warning, and this is how warnings function in the Bible. If we really love God, we're going to look at that warning and go, why would I ever want to do that? These guys are saying, not go to the feast? Why would I not go to the feast? Of course I would go to the feast. Look at all God's done. The warnings in, uh, in the New Testament work the same way. You know, Jesus says those who persevere to the end will be saved. But he also says that um, he's not lost one of his sheep. He's, he's secured and paid for every one of God's sheep. So what is it? No, he's saying you still have to persevere. You still have to go. Because we're going to say, well, I want to persevere. I've experienced the grace of God, the love of God, and I experienced the Spirit inside of me with, with rivers of living water. I, of course I'm going to obey and persevere. I want to do that. So there's a warning that serves as a, 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 to help them differentiate what really matters. Now the celebration for the ingathering is said to be the Feast of Booths. Uh, God loves to party. 
He loves it. He gave his people not only the Ten Commandments and the 613 rules that are found in uh, the, the first five books of the Bible. He said, I'm giving you these feasts, started I think with five, five parties that you have, you have to, you are required to party five times a year. And they need to be week long, and this is what you're going to do. The biggest of those was the Feast of Booths, where people used to, uh, even the, when they celebrated this later, they would make, if they had a house there in Jerusalem, they would put a tent in front of their house, and everybody, that it, Jerusalem became a tent city, and it became, they would stay in, their, under the, in the tent rather than go inside where it was comfortable and they could sleep. But God had them do that so they'd remember who they were with God in the wilderness experience. When God took them from Egypt and then said, I, I, want, I want you to be defined by my love. So he keeps them in the wilderness for 40 years so they will be defined by his love and not the idols of the earth and not make up for themselves what they think God would be. So he said, I want you to remember that and I want you to celebrate that. But what were they doing? They were remembering as they, as they were in a tent right in front of their house, they're telling God, even though I have a, a physical address on this earth, my home is not there. My home is in heaven. My home is with God. My, my home is with God's presence. So it was a reminder that this is not our home, but it also is a reminder that they were covered, even though it was a tent. All of God's people had to rely on God's holy presence covering them to protect them and to bless them. So what, was, what was God telling them? I want you to exist as sojourners on this earth to be reminded, this is not your home. You have a spiritual address. You have a spiritual address that Jesus will come back and gather his people to inhabit. And it's, he, it's, it's him. It's, he's the house. He's the temple. And then we celebrate. And we don't just celebrate for seven days like the Feast of Booths. We celebrate forever. We celebrate forever because God, God loves a celebration. Remember, remember how the heavens go crazy when just one sinner repents? God loves to celebrate. Now, the new identity that we have received when we were on this earth as we have repented of our sins and trusted Christ for salvation it will culminate in this celebration as we see Jesus face to face. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Church, we will see his face. What our doubts and our confusions hide and veil from Jesus' face will all be removed. The reason there's no... There's no more sickness and tears. It's because those things distract us from seeing Jesus. Jesus is removing all of those, so all you see is me. And when we see him, we exist with him. And his name is one because we are caught into that. The last couple of verses end with a declaration that everything's going to be holy. Everything. The horses, holy to the Lord. Remember, that was on the turban of, uh, of one of of Joshua the high priest in one of the visions of Zechariah. Everything's holy. Horses are holy. People are holy. And bowls and cups are holy. What? Oh, that's, that's just encouraging that in heaven we won't have the struggle to make 
We're always questioning in our lives. Should I do this? Should I not? Would this be honoring to the Lord? I don't know. Is it a gray area? I'm not sure. All of those confusions will go away. Everything's going to be holy. So every intention of our heart, from the uses of everything that we're doing, is all marked by Jesus' holiness because he fought the last battle, dead. Everything is done, and we have resurrected bodies to see him. Now, the, the prophecy ends, there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Uh, the traitor, remember, Jesus went in and, and, and turned the tables of the, those that were trading money and, and selling sacrifices. Every one of those traitors represents us because what they were doing, we have done, exchanged the glory of God and given it to a created thing. We look at God in his holiness and our heart recognizes, I must love you supremely. You are number one in my life. And we take that glory and say, I just don't want that. And we put it on something that God has made. And we try to exalt that thing as if to say, you're my salvation. You're my source of pleasure. You're my joy. And we sacrifice and give time and effort and, f- and for nothing. We've traded the glory of God. So also in heaven... We won't have to battle our affections to keep them on Jesus. Isn't that refreshing? We don't have to battle our own emotions. We don't have to battle our own desires and cravings. All of it. There will be no misplaced glory because we will be with Jesus. We will see him and we will see his face and oh, what a glorious day that will be. So we're going to sing that song. So let's stand up and let's celebrate seeing Jesus one day.